All right, uh, we are back. You know, I, I hope you uh, got a laugh at this modern world, as, as we always do every week. The cartoon is generally found uh, by us in the Sacramento News and Review. And although we think uh, that uh, Dan Perkins, also known as uh, Tom Tomorrow, is a bit of a genius, uh, we're sorry to note that we completely missed this item last year. Noted the comic... On September 7th, when White House officials learned of a private intelligence firm's secret entree into Al-Qaeda computers, they immediately leaked the information for partisan advantage. And I don't know, it's, it's a day of quotes. The same comic included the following quote from George W. Bush with an asterisk that said, yes, actual quote, <laughs> which, which goes as follows. We have got a bigger enemy than name callers. That is Al-Qaeda, or people losing their jobs. And no, we have no idea what he meant any more than anybody else does. We do know that he is the commander guy. Of course, you know, misery loves company. We should point out that as bad as our politicians are, and they are pretty bad, at least we don't live in South Africa. Where it should be noted that Jacob Zuma, who defeated incumbent Thabo Mbeki to become the leader of the ANC last month and hopes to become the president of South Africa when Mbeki stands down in 2009, well, he's got himself into a bit of political hot water. Jacob Zuma did this by getting married. Again. His taking of a fourth wife, while allowed by Zulu tradition, uh, is rubbing people the wrong way, uh, in a modern South Africa that's calling for gender equality. Zuma himself has not been in the forefront of the equal rights movement. In 2006, rape charges against him were dropped on a technicality. He was on trial for the fact that the year before, in 2005, he allegedly raped a longtime family friend. He did raise a few eyebrows when he admitted in open court that he knowingly had unprotected sex with the HIV-positive woman, but showered after intercourse, thinking it would reduce the risk of contracting the virus. But here's the part I like best. He said the woman had been wearing a skirt, and that he interpreted this as inviting his sexual advances. Boy, you think our presidential candidates have some issues in this area. Want to note some uh, follow-up on our article with Super Volcanoes author Dr. John Savino a couple weeks back. The Economist magazine, its uh, end-of-year issue for 2007, had an extensive article about what happened in June of 1783 when uh, an Icelandic volcano erupted and changed the climate of the Northern Hemisphere. The Economist, uh, like us, seems to save up uh, articles sometimes it's just not sure what to do with, and then, you know, at some point just puts them in the end-of-the-year issue. Anyway, we're not sure if the article's available online, but uh, we highly recommend it. And I don't know if you noticed this issue on the newsstands. It featured Chairman Mao on the cover in a Christmas hat, and including a rather eye-popping article uh, in the magazine, which, again, I'm sure they did not know what to do with this article, and they just saved it for the end of the year. But as you know, The, the Economist is a very uh, pro-business, uh, business-oriented magazine. So it was somewhat shocking to read this article, which was comparing uh, modern corporate leadership to the strategies employed by none other than Chairman Mao. Note of the magazine, and among many numerous uh, quotable passages, Mao was head of a country 
not a company, but he self-consciously carried a business-like title, chairman. While running China from 1949 until dying in office in 1976, having jailed, killed, or psychologically crushed a succession of likely replacements and therefore created the classic business problem, a succession void. Though to the magazine, Mao still has at least a symbolic hold over the Chinese economy, even though it began to blossom only after death removed his suffocating hand. To the magazine, no other recent leader of a viable country outside North Korea is so honored not even ones that did a good job. This is where we'll take a couple minutes to talk about. Uh, the magazine noted that Chairman Mao lived like an emperor. He was carried on litters by peasants. He was surrounded by concubines, and he was placated by everybody. Yet his most famous slogan was, Serve the people. The magazine went on. This paradox illustrates one aspect of his brilliance. His ability to justify his actions, no matter how entirely self-serving, as being done for others. Psychologists call this cognitive dissonance, the ability to make a compelling, heartfelt case for one thing while doing another. Being able to pull off this sort of trick is an essential skill in many professions. It allows a substandard chief executive to rationalize huge pay packages while their underlings get peanuts or rice. Consider the truth and clarity of serve the people compared with the average company's mission statement packed with a muddle of words and thoughts. Magazine went on. Chief executives are not in a position to crush the media as Mao did. Nevertheless, his handling of them offers some lessons. He talked only to sycophantic journalists and his appeal in the West came mainly from hagiographies written by reporters whose careers were built on the access they had to him. Again, this is The Economist magazine talking. Publicly listed companies have to publish information rather than hand it out selectively, but many, within bounds, emulate Mao's media management. Others, determined to control information about them, are delisting. Burrow beneath laudatory headlines on business and political leaders, and it becomes clear that the strategy works. And they closed with, Under Mao, China didn't drift. It careened. The propellant came from the top. Policies were poor, execution dreadful, and leadership misdirected. But each initiative seemed to create a centripetal force as everyone looked toward Beijing to see how to march forward or avoid being trampled. The business equivalent of this is restructuring. The broader, the better. Perhaps for the struggling executive, this is the single most important lesson. If you can't do anything right, do a lot. The more you have going on, the longer it will take for the disastrous consequences to become clear and think very big. For all his flaws, Mao was inspiring. In the long run, of course, the facts will find you out. But who cares? We all know what we are in the long run. And of course, they're referring to the famous quote by John Maynard Keynes. In the long run, we're all dead. Anyway, interesting article. I might have expected that in Mother Jones. It was very curious to see it in The Economist. All right, to change gears rather radically, we wanted to quote Reuters, another fine British publication, or at least British news service, which listed last year seven medical myths, which I think are worth going over. Keep in mind, all of these are not true. They are all myths. With, you need to drink eight glasses of water a day. Well, there is no scientific basis for this. 
How about reading in dim light ruins your eyesight? False. Shaving makes hair grow back faster or coarser? False. Eating turkey makes you drowsy? Not true. Turkey does contain an amino acid called tryptophan, which is involved in sleep and mood control. But turkey has no more of this than chicken or minced beef. You've heard this one. Hair and fingernails continue to grow after death. Not true. As you dehydrate a bit post-mortem, skin tends to shrink back, giving the effect that these things are longer. Here's one you may see in your next hospital. Mobile phones are dangerous in hospitals. The article noted that despite widespread concerns, studies have found minimal interference with medical equipment via phones. And finally, I love this one. We only use 10% of our brains. Now, it's tempting to believe this after taking a good look at, you know, prominent politicians, but in fact, it's not true. This is a myth that arose about 1907 and has just stayed with us. Someone just pulled that, plucked that figure out of thin air, but uh, brain imaging studies show that there is no area of the brain that is silent or completely inactive. To this, uh, this correspondent would like to add two more medical myths to this list. Number eight being that you have to wait an hour after eating before swimming or otherwise risk cramping up. This apparently originated in a 1922 edition of a health manual put out by the Boy Scouts. And for some reason, everybody continues to believe it. And finally, number nine, you've heard this one your entire life. Never put anything into your ear smaller than a football or alternatively, your elbow. If you, however, conduct an informal survey of doctors, nurses, and medical personnel, as I have, you will find that they all do it. And although it is possible to damage an ear with a Q-tip, the benefit of trying to use one on a regular basis is that you don't have to have the wax flushed out of your ears ever. I do it. Almost every doctor I know does it. And chances are you do it too. You just feel guilty about it. Well, you don't have to anymore. And if you are an ear, nose, and throat surgeon listening to this broadcast and want to voice a contrary opinion, send that to info at radioparallax.com. There isn't the snowball's chance in hell you're going to convince me that you're right, but I will read your letter. So have at it. Of course, if you're an ear, nose, and throat surgeon who takes your own advice, maybe I better talk a little bit louder because you might have a lot of wax building up in your ears. All right, and here, here's an article we absolutely can't resist in technology. This comes from New Scientist magazine. We talked a week or two ago about uh, new spy planes that are going to imitate insects that various uh, people want to put to nefarious uses. New Scientist notes that the U.S. Air Force Research Lab in Dayton, Ohio, uh, has been bummed by the fact that these little mini-droid aircraft uh, run out of juice. They're trying to think of a way that they could be charged by landing them directly onto overhead power lines. Noted the magazine, very small spy planes known as micro-air vehicles, MAVs, with a wingspan of about one, of about one meter, exist. They can be carried in a soldier's backpack, assembled on the battlefield, and hand-launched toward areas of interest. The trouble is, they run out of power after about 45 minutes. The good people at the Pentagon's Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, the people who gave us the internet, are trying to figure out a way for these spy planes, these mini spy planes, to crash land on power lines. Then, 
disguise themselves so you don't notice they're there. And in fact, they've worked out a way that uh, they're trying to work on a way that you might mistake these planes for those uh, sneakers that people throw up over power lines. And no, I, no, I'm not making this up, said the magazine. To avoid arousing suspicion when recharging, the spy plane will need to collapse its wings and hang limp on the cable, looking like a piece of windblown detritus. This plan, however, seems to be running into a bit of a snag of how you can crash land an MAV flying at about 40 knots onto a power line without destroying itself or the power line. The article quoted Zach Richardson, a power line engineer with the National Grid in the UK. He pointed out that if the MAV touched a pair of 11 kilovolt local power lines at the same time, the short circuit would disconnect the very power line the plane seeks. Said Ian Fells, an expert in electrical transmission in Newcastle University in the UK, even kites falling across power lines cause breakdowns. It's an utterly bizarre idea to try and land a plane on one. But hey, is this a great country or what? All right, and speaking of technology gone awry, let's take up that issue of these new ticketing devices, uh, these replacements for parking meters, which have been installed locally. Helping us discuss this issue is Ginger Rutland, associate editor at the Sacramento Bee, who does regular commentaries for Capital Public Radio. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Ginger. Thank you very much. I was quite tickled by your uh, editorial page uh, sounding off on the meter mystery at Amtrak some time back. Yes, I, I missed a train. I missed a train <laughs> because I couldn't figure out the parking system. Now, I got to tell you, the parking system is better than it was when it was run by a private entity. I'm mm-hmm. glad the city has taken it over. But they have installed these parking meters that are impossible to understand, if, especially if you're a first-time user. And mm-hmm. I was a first-time user, and I was totally confused. Well, I want to verify that about two weeks after you wrote that, I was at Amtrak, and I, too, became confused as a first-time loser. It's not very user-friendly at all. No, it's not. It's, it's counterintuitive. And the reason it's counterintuitive is because unlike any, every place else in the world, you pay when you enter the parking lot. Mm-hmm. That is, you get out of your car, you go to the pay machine, you estimate how long you're going to be <laughs> staying, and you pay right then. Mm-hmm. And nobody sort of quite gets that. Right? I mean, it's, it's yeah. just not, and I've, I've watched little old ladies particularly, and little old gentlemen, and sometimes young ladies and young gentlemen, who are just flummoxed by yeah. the machine. Yeah, I don't know whether you have any insight of this. I mean, they've, they've planted similar meters all over the downtown, and you have to go put your money in and then walk back to your car with a sticker without instructions as to what to do with it. Yeah, <laughs> that was another rant of mine a couple <laughs> of weeks ago. And that had to do with these new meters, park-and-pay meter systems, where you go to the parking station, which is usually in the middle of the block, and you plug in your money or your quarters or your dimes. And that actually is, I get that, right? I'm very happy that I can use my credit card, and I don't have to have um, a quarter. Yeah, or a pocket full of quarters. Yeah, or a pocket full of quarters. So that's a good thing. But then you, you, you get this little piece of paper, and it says, affix it to your car. But it, there are different instructions to, on different stickers. Like, on the machine itself, it says, put it on the 
street side window. And then on the ticket, it says, place it on the windshield, which for me is the thing I'm looking through. Yeah. One said windscreen, what, you know, and that's apparently a European term or yeah. a British term, sure. which I wasn't familiar with, but <laughs> that's how they say windshield right. back there in merry old England. Right. But at any rate, and so apparently the, they, they got their ticket stock from a British company, and it still said windscreen. So at any rate, they're having trouble telling us where we're supposed to put the sticker that tells the meter maid that we've paid. Personally, I like to tell them where to put the sticker because when I used one downtown and they came by and gave me a ticket, without an hour having elapsed, I didn't know what to do. And what can you do? Well, I think you should could just call the the parking control officials. I mean, you I mean, and you and you and you plead your case. I think that one of the cases that everybody ought to plead, and one of the things that the public ought to demand is, you have to be real clear about where you want us to place this sticker. Yeah. Because. Now, even if you if you figure it out, okay, it's a, it's not supposed to be on the dashboard of your car, which is where most people put it. Right. Right. You're supposed to take the little sticky and stick it onto the street side. What is the street side if you've parked in an angled parking lot? Is it the back? God. Yeah. Is it the back of the car? Uh. Is it the front of the car? Is it the side of the car? You know, what is street side when you're in angled parking? It's, it's, it's confusing. And I understand what the city's, you know, is trying to do its best, and it's really working hard. And I actually appreciate things are better at Amtrak than they were when the private company was there. It's still more complicated, way more complicated than it, it, than it ought to be. Yeah, well, Ginger, I remain baffled by what you know, the city is trying to do because they, you know, the B has covered uh, many articles about the attempts to rejuvenate downtown. It seems to me that a complicated system where you have to go to a meter and back to your car, and you have to, if you're going to put it inside your car, you've got to open the door again, put it inside. Meanwhile, meter maids are ruthlessly going up and down the street and catching you for any infraction. This is not going to help people that want to come shop downtown. Uh, I don't know what to tell you. I'm <laughs> sure that there are better I'm just minds. Venting. Then hours at work on this. I have been in communication with those folks for some time, and I understand, actually intimately understand um, the issues they're working through, but, but they haven't quite solved them yet. They're, and, they, and, and, you know, I'm hoping that they will, but they're not quite there yet. Well, Ginger Rutland, keep up the good work at, at the editorial pages of the B, and, and uh, keep those commentaries coming on CPR. Okay. I hope we'll have you on again sometime. All right. Thank you. I have enjoyed it. Okay. Bye-bye. Anyway... This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We've got plenty more. Stay tuned. Oh,